Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's only one word that matters in business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Hello and welcome to the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business. I'm Nikki Beatty and we're back for a new 2018 series with world-class entrepreneurs, mavericks and innovators in conversation. We'll be asking what it takes to see beyond everyday obstacles and what enables the world's most creative people to think differently. And over the next three months, we'll be following this year's Voom competition, the UK and Ireland's most exciting pitch event with £1 million worth of prizes and business business support up for grabs. The public votes have opened this week, so it's time to get your entries in. Voom reporter Chris Reid will be speaking to one of this year's judges later in the show to find out more. Without further ado, though, let me introduce and welcome our guest to the Voom studio for an episode focusing on one of my favourite Voom topics, pastimes and pleasures. Today, we're talking about the business of food, and I'm delighted that cook, writer, former MasterChef winner, restaurant superstar... And the founder of the hugely popular Mexican food chain Oaxaca, Tomasina Myers, is here. Is that a good introduction to you? I was completely overwhelmed by that. Do I need to add anything to the introduction? No, I think that sounds great. Good. Well, hello to you. (laughs) Uh, Oaxaca is a huge success story. Since the launch in 2007, the restaurant can now be found in over 25 locations across the country. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, producing tasty Mexican food made with honest ingredients. But one of the other brilliant things about Oaxaca is its pledge to ethics and sustainability, something inbuilt in the business from the day it was launched. And that's earned the company awards like the Sustainable Restaurant Group of the Year multiple times. And in 2016, Oaxaca became the first restaurant group in the UK to be certified as carbon neutral. And sustainability and profit with purpose are areas we'll come back to throughout this podcast. Our second guest is also someone who personifies that. He's a former Voom finalist with a business aimed at creating nutritious health foods whilst generating incomes for rural African households, all in the same bite or swallow. Uh, The company is called Aduna, and a very warm welcome to its co-founder, Andrew Hunt. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Do you know Aduna, if you see that in India, you'd pronounce it Odna. It's a girl's name. Did you know that? Uh, I didn't know that. So what does it mean for you? Well... Aduna is a Wolof word, which is the local language of the Gambia and Senegal, yeah. where I lived for several years, and I speak that language. And it means life or world. But more than that, it's kind of like a West African version of karma, which means that if you do good things, then good things will happen. And ah. if you do bad things, it might backfire. It's going to come back to you. So for people listening who are not familiar with Aduna and the products you make, would you give us a very quick introduction, particularly to the special ingredients that you use? Sure. Aduna is an Africa-inspired health food brand. 
and social business. And what we do is we specialize in extraordinary African superfoods like the baobab fruit, moringa leaf and cacao. And we source those from small-scale producers in rural Africa and transform them into delicious, nutritious products which we sell in places like Ocado, Holland & Barrett, Whole Foods and hopefully later this year some of the bigger retailers. Thomasina, have you tried baobab? Do you know what it is? No, I think it sounds very interesting. Do you, well, just tell us what baobab actually is then. Thomasina, have you ever heard of the baobab tree? No. Have you ever seen The Lion King? <laughs> no. You, no. No. Have you seen oh my the, God. You, you must have seen the silhouette of that very yes, famous tree. Yes, I have. That's the tree. Okay. Exactly. So it's that kind of iconic silhouette of a tree in the African savanna. That's the baobab tree, which is known as the tree of life. Yeah. And it grows in 32 different countries in Africa. It's a drought-resistant tree. And it absorbs and stores water in the rainy season. And when everything else around it is dry and arid, that's when it provides this fruit. And that's why they call it the tree of life. Wow. So this fruit is one of the most nutrient-dense foods in the world. It has six times the vitamin C of an orange, twice the calcium of milk, six times the potassium of bananas, 50% fibre, half of which is soluble fibre, and it has the highest antioxidant of any whole fruit. So it's a pretty special fruit. But for people listening who can't visualise this, it, what size is this fruit? A baobab pod looks a little bit like a cacao pod, yeah. but it's different because it's a fruit that grows on the branch, and when it gets ripe, instead of falling and spoiling like a normal fruit, it stays there and it effectively kind of bakes in the sun until it's completely dry, and when you open it, it's completely dehydrated. It looks a little bit like a chalky powder. Mm. So what we do is we turn it into a powder, which has a kind of sherbety, citrusy flavour, which you can add into smoothies, juices, or sprinkle on cereal and things like that. And it is delicious. I love vitamin C. Uh, Thomasina, let's go back to the beginning of Oaxaca's story. You'd just won MasterChef in 2005, and with all the attention you were getting, you could probably have gone a number of different ways in terms of your choices, your life choices, and your food choices. So what made you decide on Mexican food? Well, at that stage, I'd already been to Mexico twice. Once when I was 18, post a kind of stage doing some VAT consultancy. And then the second time was a decade later when I started cooking and thinking about food more seriously. And I decided to go back to this country, which had this overwhelmingly vast and biodiverse gastronomy of which I knew nothing about before. So I went and got a job opening a cocktail bar in Mexico City, which was my pretext for persuading my parents it was a good idea to go to Mexico. And then I used Mexico City as a jump point to travel around all the different regions of Mexico, particularly the really culinary regions, and really get under the skin of, of this vast cuisine. They call it the cuisines of Mexico because it's such a vast mm. country with so many different states and effectively they have different gastronomies across the country. And yet here, until you brought Oaxaca to our streets, we would have just thought of Mexican food as, I don't know, tequila shots and 
bad nachos, maybe? Well, the Tex-Mex story was so successful in the way it travelled the world, telling people this was Mexican food, but Tex-Mex is actually from a tiny region in Texas where they borrowed a few of the ways of eating, the sharing and that kind of fun way of filling up a tortilla, but nothing really else is similar, uh, definitely not the ingredients, because Mexico is one of the most biodiverse countries in the world. So you've got 200 varieties of chilies, scores of varieties of fruits, tomatillos, um, tomatoes, pumpkins and courgettes, cacao, vanilla, all these you know, produce that's kind of developed in Mexico, grew in Mexico. So did you need to address a particularly British attitude towards food in order to put Oaxaca on our high streets? Well, actually, I still think I still think a lot of that work has to be done because when I think about Mexican food, I think about the vibrancy and, and the healthy side. So the holy trinity of Mexican food is the chili, the bean and the corn. Mm. And corn in Mexico comes in hues of black and red and blue and white. Very little is actually the sweet corn that we know of. Um, it's very nutritious. It's high in um, riboflavin and niacin, essential vitamins and minerals. It's a superfood um, and it's ground down and made into these doughs that make the tortillas. And the pre-Hispanic diet, so before the Spanish came and conquered Mexico, was really high in wild herbs, wild leaves, fruits and the chilies, which are chilies are superfood too. I mean, I'm obsessed with chilies. I wrote a book about them. Yes, you did. Because they're so high in nutrition. Vitamin C. Vitamin C as well. Um, so this very nutritious diet, and that's what we really try and do at Oaxaca is, is play. We've got a lot of vegetarian food and even vegan food. We've got some new vegan menus because it's so high in, in the nuts and the, and the vegetables, mm. um, the indigenous diet. I got electrocuted in a bar in Mexico City because, you know, they do that thing when you're drinking mezcal. Uh, somebody comes around with one of those old-fashioned electric things and you hold those metal things in your hand and they turn the voltage up and then you go juddering like that and that that combined with the mezcal gives you a proper buzz and then you're supposed to do it around the table i bet you've done it already haven't you i've never done this (gasps) you need to introduce it to oaxaca uh, extreme drinking i think it probably is (laughs) it probably is it does certainly get your buzz on anyway um i read that when you opened your first oaxaca so many people came through the door that you actually ran out of avocados. Is that a true story? Yeah, no, we we couldn't keep up because we'd made these these recipes in my tiny kitchen in Shepherd's Bush and then people kept flooding in. And, you know, one day we'd order two boxes of avocados, run out, so that I'd double the order. Four boxes, run out. So the next day I'll be like, let's do eight boxes. And I remember very clearly this day when my business partner, Mark Sabi, and I both had dates that night and I remember turning around and saying to the chef, we need more guacamole, and him saying, we've run out. And at that stage, I was ordering 12 boxes of avocados a day, and we'd still run out of guacamole. And Mark had to get back into the kitchen and start making guacamole. He had to cancel his date. In fact, his girlfriend had to come in and make guacamole too. <laughs> <laughs> Is there an issue with avocados in the world right now, an ethical issue? Should we be questioning where our avocados come from and what we're doing to the countries that are providing them? I know that, that people are talking about this, but what, from your point of view? I think there's an issue with all the food that we eat. And that is why I think it's so great that people are starting to really think about where the food comes from. Because 
you know, everything we put in our mouth is grown somewhere. And if you think about the food industry as a whole, it's the most energy intensive and water intensive industry that we have worldwide. So the production of food, the transport of food and the way we grow food, you know, whether we let land go fallow, the soil fertility issue is mm. huge. I don't think anyone thinks about the nutrition in our soil anymore and the runoff from cutting down our rainforest, desertification. So Everything is linked, and that's why I find so fascinating about food, is it's linked to the planet's health, our health, our mental health, our physical health. And that's why I get involved in my local school. We've built this huge garden. I'm so obsessed with talking to people about buying you know, ingredients in season, local ingredients. I shop in my local market because, yes, we have a Mexican restaurant, so we do have avocados on the menu, but we try desperately to source other ingredients as close to home as possible because it's a big story that piece of flying stuff around the world yeah um at a whim andrew when you founded aduna did you start with the idea of creating an ethical brand and solving a problem or was it that when you discovered baobab that presented the opportunity the business is really inspired by what i call the possibility of baobab, the inspiring possibility of baobab, which is that these trees grow, number one, in the driest, remotest and harshest regions of Africa, which are also the poorest regions. They're entirely wild, so there's no such thing as a baobab plantation. Every single tree is community-owned or family-owned, and they have the potential to provide transformational life-changing income to some of these very remote communities. And we estimate that there's 10 million households in rural Africa who can supply the fruit from a crop that already exists and currently goes majority to waste. And National Geographic estimated if there was a global demand for baobab, that existing crop could be worth a billion dollars to rural Africa. So you are doing this with an incredible conscience, but obviously you've got to create a business that, that provides you with a lifestyle and your employees with a lifestyle. <laughs> ah, ah, you should see his face in the uh, studio here. Um, well, so the reason I, I talked about the inspiring possibility of Baobab is because that's where me and my co-founders started, which is on the one we had the Baobab fruit in our hand, this obscure African fruit, and then we had this inspiring possibility of the potential of what it could be worth. So how we started is... What would it take for that inspiring possibility to become a reality? Mm. And so we wrote the story backwards. So somewhere along the lines, you know, towards the billion-dollar industry, we've got to see Snickers with added baobab. Before that, we've got to see Oprah Winfrey talking about baobab, right? Before that, it's got to be sold in Starbucks and Pret-a-Manger. But at the very, very beginning of that, it has to be accepted and loved by the early adopters in our health food industry, mm. who are vegans, vegetarians, raw foodies, yoga mums, health and uh, beauty junkies, and a few other segments. We're, la- we're <laughs> laughing because just before we began this podcast, I was interested to know in the Venn diagram demographic of the kind of people who are buying and eating this product or who know about it. And uh, and I was putting Andrew through places going, so what else? Am I part of this? Am I part of that? Thomasina, you haven't even tried Baobab, not, not knowingly anyway yet. Already, are you thinking, how can I weave this into my... I can't wait to, I can't wait to get my hands on it. Excellent. Sounds, well, sounds I'd, amazing. I'd gladly 
supply you with some to experiment with. Mm. Um, what, could you, what could you see it in, in terms of Mexican food? Could you put it in something savoury? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously it's not a Mexican ingredient, no. so, um, you know, it might not necessarily work but for maybe the Mexican in a drink. restaurant. But maybe in a drink accompanying. Oh, I, I mean, it, you could use it. There are many things you can use it in, for sure particularly with desserts as well, anything citrusy, cheesecake. How about cheesecake? I was yeah, about exactly. to say. Yeah. I was about to say cheesecake. There you go. But um, to, to your kind of return to your original question. Thanks for keeping me on track. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we've very much come at it from solving this social, not problem, but the opportunity, mm. you know, to try and solve that. That's the purpose of our business. And that has led us to take very different decisions from what we would have probably set out if we were a purely commercial business. And some of the things that we've done are, quite frankly, bad business practice, if you go by the rule book. But did you wittingly know that they were bad business practice? Or are you saying yes. that retrospectively? <laughs> but then because you are doing this unusual thing... I don't think they really are bad business practice, right. but I, because I believe in capitalism 2.0. So I think they're actually good business practice for the sustainable future of the world. A long-term yeah. vision. Yes. Hence but if you're, if, you're, uh, if you're talking to a VC who's thinking about how do I get returns in three to five years, mm. terrible idea. I think this long-term vision is such a it's such a big thing these days. I think we're so kind of tired of this short-termism in politics and, and the way so many people look at things. You know, I think we've well, Hacker always had this very long-term vision and if you allow yourself or if you have the opportunity because you're not owned by venture capital or whatever to think in that long-term way it gives you so much opportunity presumably you must have investment yeah but with a very long-term vision they're not you know we've got exactly the same owners. i still say we're independent because we're exactly the same owners as we were when we started and and we all believe in a very long-term vision of the company alignment value and mission alignment from any stakeholders and particularly the investors because otherwise you you know it could be absolutely fatal to what you're trying to achieve so andrew did you have any background in the food business or knowledge of food before you start i know you you had an advertising career didn't you yes and to that extent i worked on some heinz frozen and chilled brands but whether you could really call that food But, but yeah, I didn't really have any background in food and neither did my co-founder. And, you know, we've learned some We need to massive... name your co-founder. Oh, Nick Salter. Yes, yes just that's so that... right. So we've learned some huge lessons. And the first one, which is blindingly obvious, is that taste has to come first. Yes. We didn't realise that. Because mm. we were coming at it from trying to create this social business and also trying to promote the health benefits so much we kind of overlook the whole fact that this is a food product, it's got to taste the best. And that's probably the number one blindingly obvious learning that we've we've had. And now we're creating products that, you know, taste is absolutely the number one priority. Both your businesses have taken amazing leaps in trying to look at something from a, a different angle or in a different way. Do you think that... That thirst to try new things is something that drives you both internally. Thomasina, who I am going to call Tommy because she said I could. Tommy. Uh, Everyone calls me Tommy. Yeah, I think, well, my business partner particularly loves the way tech can really transform your business. And I think we were one of the first restaurant groups to use an app called FlyPay. And now we have a Wahakat way so you can get the bill with your phone and pay without having that annoying thing of trying to get your waiter or waitress back. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's fun 
testing new things. It was definitely fun feeling like we were the first to do Mexican. We've got a new little business called DF Mexico, which is more kind of fusiony with like a New York Mexican space. It feels really kind of young and quirky. And we, we're testing quite a lot of new stuff there, including Deliveroo, which is, you know, the, the, this is also one of the features of food is people just, you know, consuming it at home, ordering it on their phone. I, I find it fascinating not knowing what the future holds with technology and how it's going to transform the things we take for granted, the things we do every day. How is it going to shape our lives? And the ability to adapt is, is paramount, isn't it? Yeah, so what does the DF stand for? DF uh, is the Distrito Federal, and uh, it was the ancient name for Federal Mexico, District. Federal District of Mexico. So DF um, is a slang for Mexico City. Ah. So, yeah. so where are we going to be able to experience this? DF Mexico is in Tottenham Court Road next to the Odeon Cinema and also in Brick Lane, and it is really fun. And it's full of very young people oh. um, who love to eat vegan food. So I can't Which go. is quite fun. No, 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 you can <laughs> definitely go. Because the last time I went, it was full of so many very, very um, delicious-looking people. I didn't know what to do with myself, all these young, trendies. It was quite fun. Andrew, what about you? Do you think that... In trying to look at something in a different way, I love your phrase. We wrote it backwards. Do you think that that is what drives you? I think there's something really exciting about doing something new, and for us, our focus is on what we call the underutilized ingredients, like baobab and moringa, and that's really, really exciting because. Journalists are excited, consumers are excited, you're bringing something new. And we've set out to cause a global market. And that kind of innovation, it is really exciting working with new products. And we've got a pipeline of other new products from Africa that we will bring to the market in future as well. And again, will those be giving back to the communities who have the source of whatever your ingredients are? Yeah, absolutely. The whole criteria of which ingredients we would work with, there's a whole checklist. And of course, it's got to have a potential in the market, but it's also got to be able to be sourced from small producers. It's got to be sustainably produced and all of those sorts of things. The that idea of giving thanks to the country which gave you the idea. We're really into that, giving back to Mexico, because it was the country that gave us the inspiration. Mm. How do you? How are you going to stop? Imagine the baba just goes crazy and everyone wants it. How are you going to stop the overexploitation? I guess if it's a natural product grows in the wild, you can't really, hot, you know, commercially produce it. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the beautiful things about the baobab example is that the baobab tree itself takes anywhere between twenty years to a hundred years to fruit, and so it hasn't been domesticated. So. It's not like a big agribusiness can just come in and, and make, you know, hectares and hectares of baobab plantation. That's number one. But then when it comes to the overexploitation, obviously there's a long way to go before we get to that yeah. because there's so much there that needs to be, actually needs to be exploited. But we are already working, um, we've got a partnership with actually the UN and uh, you were talking about climate change and desertification. It's the UN CCD that's focused on that. And as part of that, we're going to be starting a, a, a tree planting program Brilliant. so that we are thinking already, you know, about 20 years time. It's again, it's that long term thinking. It's not thinking about just, you know, the next couple of years. So for people listening who 
would really appreciate your advice, both of you. Where would you suggest the balance lies in terms of risking it on an innovative leap? I think you have to take some risk if you are setting out. I mean, yeah, calculated risks are good. So, you know, seeing that if there's a gap in the market. Um, or a no, market in the gap. Or a market in the gap. Or, you know, is there a demand for your product? Is your product good? It's important to have your wits about you and have a vague idea. Because you, you see some entrepreneurs on Dragon's Den with a product and they kind of seem obsessively wild and you think but what does it do <laughs> why do you need that so I think you do have to have ch- checking it against other people who you respect admire and having mentors is so important you know just really really mentors did it for me uh, and asking for advice so important but you know a bit of risk I mean we, you know walking out the door every day is a risk you know you might get hit by bus we are we are animals that probably thrive on a bit of risk yeah, definitely agree with all of that. And I think the thing is that a lot of the ideas that people come up with are, you know, it sounds like a bit of a cliche, but they are they sound crazy to start with. And a lot of people would tell you that you couldn't do it or, you know, it's not a good idea. But the reason is because nobody's done it before. And that's why it's an opportunity. But you need to have a proof of concept. It can't be a wild stab in the dark. Well, it's funny talking about that because so many people told me I was mad because Mexican Mexican food had such a bad reputation. It was kind of almost a dirty word. Mm. I remember meeting Italian chefs who'd say, oh, I hear you're a chef. What type of food do you cook? And I'd say, well, I love Mexican food. Mm. And they'd look at me with, you know, like, you're not a chef. (laughs) <laughs> like it was filth you know so there was it was yeah it was it's really interesting that you say that there's an opportunity where there is doubt sometimes. well Tommy the process of designing a menu I would imagine is fun it's creative but the transition from being a cook a chef to having to set up a supply chain process staffing managing margins how did that all fit in with with who you are as a human being was it easy so my business partner and I have very uh, complementary skill sets which which I think is really important you know you could go into business with a a friend Mm. or or just a colleague and you think oh we're both really good at this that's great actually that's hopeless what you want to be is really good at what your partner isn't good at so we definitely clashed a bit in the early days because of that we're very different people but actually, over the last decade, it's been brilliant for us because I pick up stuff that he's less strong on and he picks up stuff that I'm definitely not great at. How do you get over a clash? Uh, so we had a counsellor, like a marriage counsellor, because a business partnership is like a marriage. It's incredibly intense. It's many, many hours spent together. And I think you have to view it as a marriage in a way. It's a business marriage. And if you are clashing and finding... Because sometimes it can be very high stress and you can argue a lot. Yes. And at that stage, you need to get someone, a third party in, who's got an objective view, who can sit you down and say, look, have you considered this point of view? And it is just like a marriage counsellor and that completely sorts our relationship out. That's fascinating. It's so obvious when you say it, but I never thought that that happened in a business. What about you, Andrew? Do you Um, clash with your co Well, it's interesting because I completely agree with everything you say, but then in our case, it's not that way because Nick, my co-founder is not, you know, a kind of foil in terms of skill set, but we met through a common passion for Baobab, which there weren't many people around. <laughs> <laughs> in small, that's a small Venn diagram, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Um, 
in 2010, you know, to kind of bump into someone, which we, we pretty much did, who had a similar kind of vision for Baobab. And I agree, it is like a marriage, but it's been a, a long journey. And just, you know, to have someone else who is committed to that vision has been of huge benefit. Um, we haven't thought about having counselling yet, but that's probably a good idea. Isn't it? It's I, not bad. I think <laughs> really... it's uh, excellent. Were there any lessons, tell me, that you've learnt that you wish you'd learnt quicker or faster? What I feel I have learnt through through not just Oaxaca, but through you know writing my column in The Guardian and cookbooks and, and the whole thing is that the product, the quality of the product, you can never underestimate how important that is. And I definitely remember in the early days thinking, oh, this recipe would be fine. And then it comes out into the test, it gets into the kitchen. So you're like, well, it wasn't good enough. I needed to have tested it a couple more times. Right. And I think now I'm really strict. Uh, I'm strict on myself and strict on our teams. I'm really, really dissecting, is it good enough? Because it's got to be the best that you can achieve. And I think it's really fun when you believe wholeheartedly in something you do. And if you've got some niggling doubt at the back that, oh, I could have tried harder, mm. I could have made it better, that's never good. So I think I've definitely learned that along the way. And I think that's a wonderful thing to learn. I think the mistakes you learn in business do shape you. And So we had norovirus in 2016, yes. in 2016. And that that was such a big shock to our business. You know, explained to people it wasn't food poisoning, it was just a virus. But also the way we dealt with it and the way we had to be so honest and, and really go back to our values. Of... Well, it was so fascinating because it, it was immediate the way that you spoke and so there was no doubt and there was no room for anybody to be thinking there's a problem with the restaurant here. Yeah, no, That exactly. was really brilliant. Yeah, no, and I think actually... The support, the public support was so overwhelming, so magic. You know, A.A. Gill put an Instagram thing out the, the, the next day when the news broke going, I'm coming into Oaxaca, I love it, it's my best place. I had so many messages of support and that was so wonderful. Yeah. And I do think that if you try and live your business the way you try and live your life with integrity and, and but also fun, a sense of fun and that passion that you have because you only ever set up a business because you're passionate about something then I do think that goes through and that is part of the Oaxaca journey you go into our restaurants and they're buzzy and they're such fun to go into our staff treat everyone like and I think I think that translates in everything you do. If you can go into and shape your business the way you want to live your life, then it just makes the whole thing more fun. Is there anything, Andrew, that you wish you'd learnt faster or acted upon faster? There are there are many, many things. You know, I could reel off lots and lots of things. But overall, I agree that it's, uh, uh, with Tommy, that it's the the mistakes that you make that you learn from. And actually, I've just read recently this amazing book called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And it's really about the fact that every problem is an opportunity and can be turned into an opportunity. And I think the greatest example in the Aduna story so far is just last year, because we were in a due diligence process for an investment uh, for 12 months due diligence process and the investor pulled out unexpectedly suddenly at the end of the process, which was a real crisis because we were running a significant burn rate and we had limited cash in the bank. And, you know, that that could be a disaster, right? Mm. And so we had to restructure the business, and that was really tough. But it caused us to focus on what really works and what doesn't work. Um, but now the business is on a much better footing. And so 
these crises when they come along, whether it be a you know novel virus or a investor pulling out, if you can see the opportunity at that time, there is usually you know some kind of opportunity to grasp the spirit of an entrepreneur. Well, talking about grasping opportunity, you were involved, Andrew, in that Voom competition a few years back and made sure you took advantage of that opportunity. I want to talk about that in a moment, but first, we should remind everyone listening that Voom 2018 from Virgin Media Business has officially arrived. Voom is the UK and Ireland's most exciting pitch competition, open to businesses of all shapes and sizes. Everything you need to know about this year's competition is on the Virgin Media Business website, where you'll find all the key dates and regular updates from the team. This year, Virgin Media Business have enlisted the help of some specialist partners for Voom Pitch to judge different awards. Let's hand over to our Voom reporter, Chris Reid, to meet one of them. Thanks, Nikki. I'm outside Topshop on London's Oxford Street with Jamal Azel. Jamal is one of the judges for the Virgin Unite Impact Award this year and has got huge amounts of experience running a social enterprise and also of entering Voom himself. Jamal, hello. Hi there. Uh, now tell us, why are we here outside Topshop? So we're a social organisation which tackles homelessness through selling great coffee. And one of the things that we do is events around London, around the UK, where we essentially offer free coffee to organisations to keep their employees happy. And it's a five-week month this month, and Topshop wanted to make their employees happy by giving out free coffee. And is it working? It seems to be working. There's queues going out the door. So um, we seem to be selling more hot chocolate than coffee. So hopefully that that doesn't say anything about our coffee, but it's all good. (laughs) Um, Jamal, what's the history of Change, please? How did it come about? So Change Peace launched in November 2015 in partnership with The Big Issue, essentially to tackle the growing numbers of people that were homeless, which has doubled since 2010, through the growing demand in coffee that we see all around us. And essentially we find people that are homeless, that are rough sleeping, we train them to be a speciality level barista, and we give them a job that pays the London living wage, which at now £10.20 is £3 more per hour than any of the high street competitors that we, uh, we come across. And we also provide housing, a bank account and therapy support. So within 10 days of our staff starting to work for us, it means they're not homeless anymore. So it's a model that's really working and it means that individuals are not dependent on government and handouts for their accommodation, but they're able to earn their own income through coffee and afford their own accommodation so they're self-sufficient. Um, what a fantastic uh, business and business idea. Some fantastic coffee as well, I have to say. And Jamal, what, what led you to set up Change, please? What was the history behind that? So I used to work in the city and it was a journey that I took with my partner in Vietnam. I was on a bus travelling through Vietnam and an American traveller sat next to me on an 18-hour bus journey. And just, you know, he asked me what I did. I said I wasn't too happy with my job at the time. And he said something that changed my life. He said, if you're not happy with your job, you should do the rocking chair test. So that's to imagine yourself sitting in your rocking chair at the age of 90, looking back on your life and thinking about what have you done, what have you achieved, what's your legacy on the world, who's going to remember you and have you left the world in a better place? And the answers to all those questions for me were uh, 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 absolutely not, you know, I'm not a great person, it's all been about me, it's all been about just my immediate friends and family and I've not left a legacy or helped anybody else. And at the age of 29 it's probably a bit too early to be looking at those things but it really affected me. And then a couple of weeks later we went to a place in Vietnam called Hoi An 
where there's a silent tea house. So this was a tea house that was set up by deaf and mute ladies who had no, no other opportunities in, that, in, in, the, in the town. And they got together and created this incredible tea house that the only rule is you're silent. And that really touched me. And I realized for the first time, actually, you can do business and good at the same time. And that was, that was the start of the idea. And I, I left and said, right, I'm going to set up a silent tea house in Clapham. And then I kind of five minutes later thought, I don't like tea, I hate Clapham, and I don't like silence. This isn't the start of a good business. And um, started to think a bit more about it, and I had, had this idea, which was going to support homelessness. And then, by chance, got back to London, got back to Paddington. I saw a homeless person with a cardboard sign saying, just the words change, please, you know, asking for money. And then a week later, we just went to a Banksy exhibition in Croydon. And there was some graffiti art that Banksy made, which essentially is a homeless person sitting on the street with his hand out saying, keep your coins, I want change. And that was it. Everything came together. I saw the double meaning in the name Change Please and decided to kind of leave my job and focus on, on this social enterprise journey. And so that was, what, three years ago? Yeah. How has Change Please grown ever since? It's gone crazy, really. I mean, people seem to like to drink coffee, but they seem to like to do good at the same time. So it's just really catapulted. We've got 17 sites in the UK, 15 in London, two in Manchester. We are supporting, on average, seven people per month off the streets. We have got sites in corporate offices around the country. We've got our coffee in Sainsbury's, 375 stores, and it's soon going to be on Ocado. And also just got a new contract with Transport for London. So we are opening in tube stations across London. We've opened a new site in Perth in Australia, and we've just met the mayor's office in New York. Especially in the US, there's a huge problem with homelessness. It's far more visible. There's less welfare support. So an organisation which is kind of supporting people in a different way through enterprise is a perfect fit for the US consumers. And tell us a little bit about your relationships with Virgin Unite and with Voom. You entered Voom in 2016. How was that for you? Would you recommend it for other businesses? Yeah, the Voom was an incredible experience for us. And working generally with Virgin has just been absolutely phenomenal. Over the years, they've really supported us with mentors, guidance, support. Six months after opening, we got an invitation from Richard Branson to go to Necker Island. And we got mentoring from him. We presented to his leadership team and learn all about Virgin Unite as an organisation and all the work that they're doing with the B team and the Carbon War Room and Ocean Unite. And it was just absolutely phenomenal to see the, the breadth of the organisation, how much good it's doing to society. And then that led us to uh, apply to Virgin Voom, which was just an incredible experience. I mean, it was a lot of work. You had to really make sure that your audience knew about what you were doing. They voted for you online just to get into that final stage. Um, and we got into the semi-finals and met some incredible organisations. One, one of the guys that, that sat next to me on the actual finals was the, the winner in the end who converts plastic into roads. It was just insane organisation. So, you know, the overall experience with working with Virgin and working with Virgin Unite and Voom has just been spectacular. So to come back as a judge and, and try and find an organisation who will be given a £20,000 grant is just, you know, it's an absolute privilege. And I think that money to a social organisation, and we would, we would know the value of it, is just so impactful because so many organisations will give you money or a loan or, a, or, or debt financing, but to get an unrestricted grant is just so invaluable and will allow the winner to do so much social good. What are the three things that you think you'll be looking for or indeed the three pieces of advice you would give to organisations who want to succeed in social purpose? 
So the first quality that I'd be looking for and advice generally is to focus on the quality of product. So, you know, the, what we've learned is it doesn't really matter what your social impact level is. If you're selling your product, it has to be the same, if not better, than your competitors. So some people that I see, some organisations I see, think that they can fall back on their social impact and not have as good a product as somebody else, not have as good a coffee in our case as somebody else. But if anything, the social impact means that individuals think that there must be some sort of compromise on the quality and therefore that's how you're able to afford to do your social and your product development at the same time. So therefore you need to be much better at that than your competitors and make sure your product really stands out and you're competitive in, 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 from a product perspective. The next area is really understanding your social impact, you know, do you really understand what you're doing and who you're helping and the benefits and how much depth have you gone into to understand that or is it just, dare I say, a token bit of support that you're doing just to fit into a category and, and it's more of a marketing thing than actually something that you really care about and want to make a difference. And the third area that I'd really look at is the USP, you know, what is unique about your product, what is different that's absolutely crucial for the entrepreneur to understand where their product fits into the marketplace and the value of that product. And I think if they've got some sort of minimum viable product and they've proven their model works, they've proven the product is successful, even if it's not going to take over the world, but there's, there's, they've just started and they've seen traction in what they're doing, I think that's a great starting point because from that traction you can start to build, you can start to take criticism, apply that criticism, improve your product, develop and grow and I think that's that's really the start of any good business. So having a quality product, having a USP and really well thought out social impact that's not a token but is actually making a real difference. Jamal from uh, Change Police, thank you very much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and thanks very much for the coffee as well. Uh, very tasty. No problem. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to Voom reporter Chris Reed there with Jamal Azel from Change Please and what an excellent example of an impact business that is. As he mentioned, he'll be judging this year's Voom Impact Award alongside the Virgin Unite team and if you want to find out more about how to enter the competition, just head to virginmediabusiness.co.uk slash voom. Back in the studio now, I'm with Thomasina Myers from Oaxaca, or Tommy Myers, as she prefers to be known, and Andrew Hunt from Aduna. Andrew, you experienced Voom yourself. Do you want to just tell us how it helped you and what you did? I mean, it was an amazing experience, and I have to say I was quite cynical about it when we entered. Uh, you know, they said it's a quarter of a million pound marketing prize, and I, and I was thinking, oh, well, I know that's going to be a quarter of a million pounds of media space on the Virgin Digital DV channel or something like that. <laughs> um, so I was I was quite cynical, but I found completely the opposite. It was an amazing process. We decided that we would enter it because we had recently got into Holland and Barrett. We were in 250 stores, but we needed to really drive rate of sale of Baobab, and no one had heard of Baobab at that point, and we wanted to get into the full 750 stores. We needed something special. And when we heard that there was this, um, you know, competition where you could win a marketing campaign, we thought, you know, that could tick the boxes. So we entered into it. And rather than just saying, look at our business, we're going to make lots of money and get rich. We're really cool. Please vote for us. We 
created the inspiring possibility of Baobab for the public. And we said, if you vote for us, we will use the, the prize money to create a Make Baobab Famous campaign, which will create a transformation in awareness of Baobab and will help to cause a billion-dollar industry for rural Africa. And so it was just an incredible, crazy two weeks of public voting. Um, I don't think I got any sleep at all. <laughs> Uh, and I was I was kind of wired, <laughs> but the campaign went viral in the last twenty uh, forty eight hours. We got tweets from all kinds of people that we you know couldn't have imagined, like Jonathan Ross, Billy Piper, Annie Lennox, and so we ended up winning public voting, and then that got us the opportunity to go and pitch directly to Sir Richard Branson. And what we had to do to create that campaign was to outreach to all our stakeholders and all our partners. So. For example, people like the Soil Association, the Africa Centre, um, you know, all the kind of organisations that are in our network were all posting stuff through their newsletters, their social media, their Facebook. And we got our story and our message and our mission out really powerfully, aside from, you know, the, the actual prize itself. But the prize itself was fantastic because I could then go back to Holland and Barrett mm. and say, look, we'll take you know, a chunk of this and invest it with you guys if you'll run the campaign with us and put us in all the stores. And so, you know, February 2016, the impossible became reality and we had a window takeover of all 750 stores with Make Baobab Famous. And the absolute Baobab miracle that occurred, this will never happen again in the history of high street retail. They changed their name to Holland and Baobab Wow. wow. For five weeks. That's on extraordinary. Instagram, Facebook. And if you typed into Google Holland and Barrett, the first thing that came up was their Google Plus profile and the logo was Holland and Baobab. That's so, uh, it's extraordinary. Isn't it? So you made Baobab famous. You did it. That is really... Still working on it. But, that story yeah. is wonderful. Aww. I've never heard such an amazing story. That's so lovely. <laughs> Let's stay with the subject of growth. In we alluded earlier to Wahaka's pledge to sustainability, something that's really impressive for a chain of that size as well. How have you managed to successfully scale the business without compromising? I think right from the word go, we wanted to be a sustainable business. I think this idea that you either successful or sustainable is very old hat and old fashioned these days. And I think many businesses have proven this from renewable energy to all sorts of things so yeah this was 12 years ago and we just set out to recycle our food waste to you know separate all our different wastes out so that we could recycle our glass through a kind of compacting glass machine um, work with local growers fish msc we won a lifetime achievement award with the msc at the end of last year because we've only ever had sustainable fish and it does get difficult sometimes you know as a chef you see delicious ideas for tuna tostadas and, and mm. char-grilled octopus. And then you drill down and you think, well, where are those coming from and how they fished? And you think, well, which wins out, the ethics or the kind of marketability? So sometimes there were difficult decisions along the way. What, what do you think was the most difficult one so far? Well, I think fish 
Fish for me, you know, I, I absolutely know that if we had a, a really delicious tuna tostada, it would fly out. Yeah. And instead we were doing, you know, herring pescadillas, which, <laughs> you know, I love herring. My, my children love herring. It's very sustainable, but it's not like the sexiest fish choice. So those are difficult when you're thinking from a commercial viability mm. hat on. So, so, yeah. So a question to both of you. Your top tips for people listening for building purpose into a profitable business. Andrew. Well, I think you have to start with your own personal motivation because, you know, that's what purpose is. It's so do you why think, am I doing this? Do you think somebody listening who thinks, oh, these two have got really big consciences, maybe that's the way forward, and they see it like that, do you think that somebody can just try at least to do something a bit more ethically or do you have to be ethical from the beginning? It's not even necessarily being ethical. That's kind of putting a badge on it. It's like, what is your motivation for doing this? What do you want to contribute to the world? Uh, you know, there's a kind of assumption that, you know, business is about making money, you know, which obviously that's a component to it, is an important component to it. But I really caution anyone to start a business for that reason alone because it's not easy. And there are definitely many, many times that you will face where you won't be earning the money. There is no money. That's why I was laughing earlier about the lifestyle <laughs> you were talking about. And the challenges are too much. You're just going to give up. So for me, what I was looking to, to create was a business where the social and the commercial go completely hand in hand and to prove that you're actually commercially successful because you're sustainable and you're ethical and you're purpose-driven. I Tell think, me. yeah, I, I think that's completely true. There are always going to be hard times. You've got to, you've got to battle through the hard times. And for us, for us, what's been lovely and easy about it is my business partner and I always had this single-minded idea that you could have fun at work, and we had this absolute evangelical thing about spreading the gospel of fresh, vibrant Mexican food because people thought it was completely different. And we still have that same gospel, you know, shouting about how delicious Mexican food is, but in, in a really fun way so that, you know, our staff come to work having fun, we ha come to work having fun, our guests come into our restaurants and hopefully leave in a slightly better place. But also by looking after everyone around us, looking after our customers, looking after our suppliers, looking after the planet a little bit so that it's not this kind of holier than thou you know we are worthy it's just that's just the way we want to live all of us looking out for each other and having fun along the way exactly we're nearly at the end of today's podcast it has been such a delight to have you both in the voom studio today i wish we had even more time for people listening where can we follow you to find out more on social media so at Thomasina Myers on Instagram or Twitter and then Oaxaca is at Oaxaca, W-A-H-A-C-A. And you can find our Oaxaca food in supermarkets now too. Whoa! Andrew? You can follow at Aduna World, particularly on Instagram and Facebook for lots of healthy recipes and competitions and prizes and things like that. That's it for this episode, but the Boom Podcast will be back in two weeks. In the meantime, remember, you can head to virginmediabusiness.co.uk slash Boom to enter the competition. And for more podcasts, entrepreneurial articles, tips and advice, there's loads over at virgin.com too. You can get in touch with us by tweeting at Virgin using the hashtag Voom. Until next time, for me, Nikki Bady, goodbye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.